You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Thank you that you revealed your love for us through your son. Thank you that we can sing about his death and his resurrection and what it accomplished for us and celebrate that together at the Lord's table. Lord, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for every single need in this room and everyone listening online. Whatever we need to hear this morning, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit himself would bring it to our hearts. Um, Lord, assurance, comfort, conviction, whatever it might be, Lord, you know our hearts. You know uh, what you have intended for this morning to accomplish. I pray for anyone who's here that doesn't know you doesn't know your love, doesn't know Christ and his forgiveness, or that even today and they might come to experience this great redemption. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. D.A. Carson writes that if there's one thing our world thinks it knows about God, it is that he is a loving God. Not only do we think God ought to love, but he especially ought to love me. Of course God will love me. There's nothing in me not to love. But contrary to this popular assumption, Carson reminds us, quote, in the Bible, it is simply astonishing that God loves us. Our text for today reminds us that God's love for us is the opposite of what we deserved and the last thing we could have expected. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 5 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. Romans chapter 5. Last Sunday we looked at the process God uses to produce a solid hope in our lives, even in the midst of suffering and trials. And the reason our confident expectation of future good will not be disappointed is because the last part of verse 5 says because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us so Paul is referring in that verse to a subjective experience in our hearts produced by the Holy Spirit that sweetly assures us that God really loves us. And that inner experience of knowing God's love for us is grounded in an objective historical event, namely the death of Jesus. And so that's where he goes after five. He starts with four, verse six, four while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I want to look first at what kind of people did Jesus die for? Even though we may have gotten the impression that there was something special about us that made us worthy to have Jesus die for us, Paul makes it clear we were not entitled to God's love and that the death of Christ on behalf of people like us was the opposite of what we deserved. Verse 7 sets up a contrast. He says, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. So occasionally we come across a story of someone laying down their life for someone else. So here's a true story from World War II, group of prisoners of war. This is quoting from Ernest Gordon. Quote, at the end of each day, the tools were collected from the work party. On one occasion, a Japanese guard shouted that a shovel was missing and demanded to know which man had taken it and ordered whoever was guilty to step forward. No one moved. All die, all die, he shrieked, aiming his rifle at the prisoners. At that moment, a 19-year-old man stepped forward and the guard clubbed him to death with his rifle. When they returned to the camp, the tools were counted again and no shovel was missing. True story. And we admire someone like that who would be willing to sacrifice his own life on behalf of his friends. And Paul says, yeah, that happens occasionally. People might do that for a good person or a righteous person. But when Jesus died, it was not for righteous or good people. He already said there are no such people in the whole world back in chapter 3. Remember in chapter 3 verse 10 he says, There is none righteous, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside, all have become corrupt. There is none who does good, there's not even one. So there's, there's no such category as good or righteous people to die for. So look at, instead the description gives Given in these verses, Jesus died not for righteous people, but for ungodly people. Do you see that in verse 6? Ungodly people. Ungodly, as you might guess, is the opposite of godly. It means opposed to God and godliness. If you look it up in the dictionary, it means denying or disobeying God. Impious, irreligious, wicked, meaning morally bad or evil. And what do ungodly people like us deserve? Well, remember back in Romans 1.18, we saw the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So that's what ungodliness deserves. Wrath from God poured out. Or Jude. Um, listen to all the times he uses the word ungodly in this verse. Jude, verse 14b and 15. Behold, the Lord came with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So four ungodlies in there. And he's saying that brings judgment from God. 
And Jesus did not die for morally good people. Verse 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And remember, sin is missing the marker, failing to meet a standard, falling short of God's requirements. And we saw in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what do sinners like us deserve? And Rick, Romans 6.23 is going to tell us the wages of sin, what we deserve for our sin is death. Separation from God, now and forever. Or Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins will die. And when Jesus died, it was not while we were friends of God who loved him, but while we were enemies who hated him. We see that in verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So we're enemies. We didn't love God. We were not even neutral or indifferent toward him. We saw in verse 132 that we were haters of God. And when we get to 8-7, we'll see we have enmity toward God or we are hostile to God. And of course, on God's side, in his holiness, he is rightfully opposed to us for our defiant rebellion. And so what do enemies like us deserve? This is Luke 19 Remember, Jesus tells a parable. This is right after he came to Zacchaeus' house and says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. This great news for all of us. Right after that, verse 11, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So Jesus tells a story about the men and how they invested their minas or the one who didn't do anything with it and was roundly rebuked for that and then at the end of the story he ends it with this but these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them bring them here and slay them in my presence so there's Jesus gentle Jesus meek and mild and he says slay my enemies in front of me that's what enemies deserve if they're not reconciled So the last thing we could ever deserve in light of the fact that we're ungodly sinners and enemies is that God would send his son to die for us. Jerry Bridges tells a story about growing up in Texas. Quote, when I was a child, homeless men then called hobos would sometimes appear at the front door and ask my mother for a meal. Without receiving any work in return, mother would prepare a plate of food for them to eat on our front porch. She was granting an unmerited or undeserved favor. But it was not grace. If, however, a hobo appeared at our door whom my mother recognized as a man who had previously robbed us, then a new element is introduced. 
Now the food is given despite demerit. Not only is the man undeserving of the food in the sense of earning it, he actually deserves punishment instead because of his crime. So should that guilty thief go away thinking, I must be pretty special. Mrs. Bridges just can't help loving me and making me good home-cooked meals. Or should he say, wow, how can she treat me so kindly when I have treated her so badly? She could have called the police. She could have gotten me sent to jail. And instead, she gives me a warm meal. Who does that? Who treats people like me so kindly? in an infinitely greater way than that. We have all sinned against a holy God. We are his enemies who have lived ungodly lives in defiance of our creator. But instead of sending us to hell, he sends us his son. Instead of us having to pay the consequences we deserve to pay for our sins, he sends Jesus to pay for them as a substitute. Does it make any sense to think we deserve that? He should have done that. He owed us that. It is astonishing that God would love us in spite of who we were and in spite of what we've done and that he would give his own son to die for us. Paul has one more word to describe the kind of people Jesus died for. He uses the word helpless, also translated powerless or without strength. We were utterly unable to rescue ourselves from our complete ruin and sin. We were absolutely helpless to make things right with God. We were unwilling and unable to make ourselves acceptable in God's sight. It's not that we couldn't do very much. It's that we could do nothing at all. Ben Franklin is the one who said, God helps those who help themselves. But the Bible says, God loves and rescues those who can't help themselves, who are completely undone and can't help themselves at all. So while we were yet sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies, and while we were helpless to do anything about it, that's when God sent Jesus to die for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to do anything because we couldn't. He chose to love us in spite of everything. Well, the next verses talk about what the death of Jesus accomplished, verses 9 through 11. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So first, guilty people are justified by God. You see that in the first part of 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Justified means declared right in God's sight, fully acquitted of all of our sins, fully accepted as righteous. 
by his blood. The shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross was necessary for a holy God to righteously pardon our sins. He couldn't just overlook them or treat them as if they didn't matter. And so, as we saw back in chapter 3, God demonstrated his righteousness in providing Christ as a propitiation, a big word meaning a sacrifice that removes wrath so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So guilty people are justified because of the death of Christ. Second, condemned people are rescued from the wrath of God. You see that in the last part of it. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Wrath is God's holy hatred of sin and evil and his righteous commitment to punish all sin and evil appropriately. We saw this back in 118 that he pours out his wrath against all ungodliness. In chapter 2, verse 5, we saw because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's what we all deserve is wrath, hell, but because of Jesus, we're rescued from wrath. Let's go to 1 John 4. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there it is again. God's love provides a way to deal with God's wrath so that we're rescued from it. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. It's describing the conversion of the Thessalonians Talks about how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Or 5, 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So you see all these pieces coming together. We're sinners, we deserve wrath. Jesus dies, he takes away the wrath, so we're rescued from it. And third, those who were enemies of God have been reconciled to God. To reconcile means to restore harmony in a relationship after there's been a quarrel. To bring back a relationship to good terms after there has been a conflict. We all had a broken relationship with God. We could not remove the massive barriers that stood between us, but God took the initiative to make things right between us. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, we read in verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So those sins had to be dealt with for God to be reconciled to us again. And so Jesus took them on himself, so that barrier is now gone and reconciliation can happen. In fact, it's already happened. He says, we have now received the reconciliation. Which is similar to Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22. Colossians 1, 
says, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So we were a mess. We were alienated from God. We had this broken relationship. We were hostile. We were evil. God could have left us stay that way. But instead, he sends Jesus. Jesus pays the price to reconcile us to God. And one more outcome in addition to guilty people justified by God and condemned people rescued from the wrath of God and enemies reconciled to God, Paul adds another word of assurance in verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God has already provided his son to die for us while we were still enemies. Now that we are his children, now that we are his people, how much more can we be sure that we will be saved on the last day? And that life of Jesus there is not a reference to his earthly life of 33 years. It was a perfect, sinless, obedient life. It seems like it's pointing to the unending life of Jesus now that he's been raised from the dead and seated at the Father's right hand and Two verses about that. One will be Romans 8.34. says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So he could have just said he died, but he, he's, but he still lives and he's interceding for us right now which is the point of Hebrews 7.25 as well. It's even clearer here that the life of Jesus in this sense is what is guaranteeing the saving at the last day of his people. 7.25 Therefore, he is able to save forever or completely or to the uttermost it's all three of those words together <laughs> do everything necessary to save forever those who draw near to God through him why or how is that possible since he always lives to make intercession for them so Jesus is interceding for us right now and that's what guarantees that he saves us forever so we have been saved we're in the process of being saved and we will be saved on the last day. And Paul and Hebrews connect it to the life of Jesus. That he's alive because he's risen and he's interceding for us. So as we close, look at two responses to these realities. First, receive it. To see the phrase, we have now received the reconciliation which means it's not automatic. It doesn't happen by itself. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
that's originally written to a local church, but Paul doesn't assume everyone in the congregation has made their peace with God. And so he pleads with them, and I'm pleading with you, be reconciled to God. Make your peace with God. Don't put it off. Take care of it today. Acknowledge, I don't have peace with God. Isaiah 59 2 says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. You're cut off. There's a, a barrier, there's a distance. And acknowledge, I can't make things right with God by anything I could do or offer. Ephesians 2 says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of your works, lest anyone should boast. So we can't contribute to this at all. So I turn from sin and I trust Christ alone as the only one who can take away my sins and restore me to God. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For those who are trusting in Christ this morning, Paul tells us the appropriate response. We exult or we rejoice in God. So this is the third time he's talked about that in chapter 5 in 11 verses. Remember, he started by telling us we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the confident expectation that someday we will enjoy the glorious presence of God in all of its fullness for all of eternity. That's our hope. And then he kind of surprisingly told us we also rejoice in trials or tribulations or suffering not in themselves but because we know they produce endurance and endurance produces proven character proven character produces hope a hope that doesn't make us shamed because the love of God is shed abroad so it's all connected and then he lands back on so we're rejoicing in hope we're rejoicing in the process God is using and we rejoice that God has already provided for us reconciliation through Christ because of his great undeserved, unexpected love. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Same word, exult in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me or covered me with a robe of of righteousness. I want to close with a quote from the second part of Pilgrim's Progress. There's a scene where Greatheart is telling Christiana and her family and Mercy about the cross and why it was necessary. And so I'll start with Greatheart. In order to pardon by deed, there must be something paid to God as a price, as well as something prepared to cover us. Sin has delivered us up to the just curse of a righteous law. Now from this curse, we must be justified by way of redemption, a price being paid for the harms we have done. And this is by the blood of your Lord, who came and stood in your place, and died your death for your transgressions. Thus he has ransomed you from your transgressions by blood and covered your polluted and deformed souls with righteousness, for the sake of which God passes by you and will not hurt you when he comes to judge the world. Greatheart continues, 
there is not only comfort and the ease of a burden brought to us by this, but an endeared affection begot in us by it. For who can but be affected with the way and means of redemption and with the man who hath brought it for him? And now Christiana is going to respond. And I just think her response to that reality of Jesus dying for her is so much more in tune with Romans 5 than maybe some of our Christian culture has taught us to think of it. So I'll just read it. Christiana says, True. Methinks it makes my heart bleed to think that he should bleed for me. O thou loving one, O thou blessed one, thou hast bought me. Thou hast paid for me 10,000 times more than I am worth. Let's pray. Lord, there's an old song that said, you paid much too high a price. And these words from Bunyan are, just a reminder to us that we should not take your love for granted. We shouldn't take the death of Jesus as if that was obvious. Of course he would do that for me. Lord, I pray we would be rightly astonished at your great love with which you've loved us, that we'd be rightly amazed that Jesus would die for people like us, that our hearts would be thankful for all you have done for us by undeserved grace. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. I pray again for anyone who's here listening that they have not made peace with you, if they have not found forgiveness in Christ, if they don't have a relationship with you, Lord, that even today they would turn to Jesus as the only one who can bring that about. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing how deep the Father's love for us as we prepare for the Lord's Supper.